Thanks for joining. This is going to be a little bit of a quick take here based off of a article that came across my attention in the news recently, particularly within the state of California, about uh, restriction of playing football due to fear of concussions. And so there's a lot of myths and misconceptions out there about concussions and sports and where the distinct sports fall in, in terms of what can and cannot lead to concussions and the outcome of concussions and the, I guess for lack of a better term, the fear mongering that comes about, about what long-term impacts might develop due to playing distinct sports, particularly in terms of uh, cognitive uh, and neurological issues that will arise or can arise is a better way of putting it from playing these sports due to injuries. And most of this stems from flawed research that looks more at confirmation of what people suspect is occurring in a post-mortem that it would be after death autopsy and examination of brains for people who have chronic traumatic encephalopathy, sometimes referred to as CTE, that everybody seems to be afraid about without understanding the actual uh, anatomy and physiology, the actual uh, process that leads to the CTE issues that gets ignored when we have a lot of these discussions in public forums, particularly amongst politicians that are attempting to regulate uh, distinct activities within the populace. And so let's go ahead and let's talk about the issues surrounding concussions and whether or not we should be banning uh, young children from playing distinct types of sports. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. The idea about concussions has become a more hotter hot button topic in sports, sports medicine, and in the populace as a whole over the last few decades. Over that time, we've garnered uh, more attention beyond just sports medicine as it relates to the topics of concussions and long-term effects of head injuries from athletes, particularly uh, discussion topics that find its way into the media. The concern is partially seen in sports that are dominated by male athletes, such as boxing, mixed martial arts, American football, hockey, uh, soccer, or football, as it's called throughout the rest of the world, lacrosse, even though females appear to have greater susceptibility to concussions relative to their matched sport male counterparts. All told, the increase of awareness of the issues concerning concussions have led to more people becoming aware of possible long-term health concerns of concussions, traumatic brain injuries. Yet at the same time, we have lost focus as to what a concussion is and what a concussion is not. Therefore, it might be wise to take a step back and discuss concussions and why sports, con sports concussions, which only account for 15.5% of all concussions, dominate the overall concern for individuals and why one sport in particular, American football, appears to be the primary focus of concern. So what is a concussion? 
concussions are a form of traumatic brain injuries, sometimes referred to as TBIs, which commonly are referenced as being a mild traumatic brain injury based off of the Glasgow coma scales that are used to categorize severity of head traumas, going from mild to moderate or to severe, based off of the outward signs and symptoms that are being presented. Where we have within the mild state that is the general sense that we see with concussions, generally no loss of consciousness, some confusion and amnesia, a minimal loss of functions lasting less than 24 hours, with some sensitivity to noise and light, with moderate headaches lasting less than 24 hours. Now, in some cases, concussions may get into what sometimes referred to as a moderate level within that scaling, where we can have a slight loss of consciousness, usually less than two minutes, where we have definite confusion and post-traumatic amnesia, with moderate loss of functions, with concussion symptoms lasting from one to seven days, as amnesia recedes over a day, 24 hours. There is distinct sensitivity to light, movement, and noise, and moderate to, to severe behavior changes associated with headaches, along with possible cervical pain that lasts upwards of seven days. So that's the grading that we see. Like I said, most of the concussions that we discuss, particularly within the sports realm, are in that mild range. Concussions are going to develop based off of what's referred to as impact forces on the brain. That is, forces that are exerted on the brain due to a sudden deceleration or a sudden acceleration of the head that is typically associated with blunt force trauma. Now, the force that's necessary in order to generate a concussion by itself is between 50 and 100 Gs. Yet we know that repetitive head trauma with G forces well below that threshold may cause concussion-like symptoms to develop in athletes. The impact that head movements and blunt force trauma will have can be felt either as a linear force, that's a straight line force, or more commonly as a rotational acceleration due to the anatomy of the head relative to the anatomy of the brain. And that's simply because the brain is floating within the head, within cerebral spinal fluid, free floating, where the movement due to physics is going to be based off of a slight lag in motion between the brain and the rest of the head. So the brain itself is going to feel accelerations and decelerations based off of changes in inertia that is in a slight differentiation to the movements that are being felt by the rest of the body. This is very similar to the forces that you feel on your body when you're sitting in a car where you are pressing on the accelerator and pressing on the decelerator, the brake pad or the brake pedal, I should say, where your body moves in a slight delayed fashion to the rest of the car. That's the same thing that's happening with the brain. 
And so the phenomenons that we see in terms of these drastic changes in motions get transmitted onto the brain. It doesn't matter whether it is a small force or a large force, that same inertial factor will come into play. Now the cerebral spinal fluid, the fluid that surrounds the brain, acts as a cushioning agent, acts as a shock absorber. And what this does is this slows down the rate of movement, the rate of transition that gets felt in the brain based off of the movement of the, the head and the rest of the body. When the cerebral spinal fluid cannot act as a dampening agent, the brain itself will interact with the bones of the skull, the bones of the head, resulting in a transfer of energy in a wave form. So we get this kind of wave pattern being passed through the tissue. That results in a lot of shearing and rotational force across the axons of the neurons, the projections of the neurons that lead to connections in between the various neurons, where if it is above that 50 to 100 G force, results in what's referred to as a diffuse axonal injury medically. And what this means is that the neurons are basically being sheared a little bit, they're being stretched a little bit, that leads to damage in the neurons. If there is an excessive amount of damage that takes place, we will see symptoms and functional losses in the area where damage took place. The vast majority of contacts that take place within sports falls well below any type of force that would cause any type of axonal injuries. And because of that, we end up having a kind of two-sided debate that doesn't actually look at what is taking place. We have this kind of overall concern that, oh, any type of head contact is automatically going to cause concussions. And that's not true. We also have this kind of lack of awareness about how long should we have in between sporting events, in between practices, in between activities, where we, sus where we suspect head trauma might have occurred. And so when we start looking at this, we have to discuss a couple of things. We have to discuss the association of injury to the brain with or without other types of noticeable injuries, along with what types of preventative measures can we follow that might limit the injuries from taking place. And it kind of boils down to, okay, what is the physics? Once again, we have to get back into our science here. What is the physics taking place on the body and how does the body's anatomy and physiology counteract these physical forces? And when we start looking at this, we have to basically base it on four points. Point one, how quickly are each of the individuals in contact moving? Point two, how much time is contact taking place? 
Point three, what angle is contact being made? And point four, what is the mass of the individuals? The role of the physics within these contacts is going to help us explain whether or not a concussive event, that is a contact that leads to concussion, occurs. And so this is going to help us explain whether the concussive event is the same, whether the contact is player on player, player on ground, or object on player. And so when we start talking about this, what we're talking about player on player is two athletes coming in contact with each other. Player on ground is the person falling and hitting the surface that they're playing on. Object on player is whether a ball or a puck or whatever sport object that they're playing with is coming in contact with the head. When we start looking at this, there's two things that we have to look at in terms of the physics of contact. That is how much mass is being applied and the speed at which that mass is occurring. When we talk about speed, we have to not look at just velocity, but we also have to look at the acceleration. That is how quickly am I speeding up or how quickly am I slowing down? And that speed at which I'm changing my speed, the acceleration, is where we're gonna get the force being applied. And the G-force in particular is simply a reference to what is the relative amount of acceleration to gravity itself. And so given the likelihood for risks that can come about, what are the, the greatest and least risks that are available? And so as we start looking at risk developments, Concussive injuries become greater for larger and faster athletes, even if there is no head-to-head -head or head-to-body contact within the sport. In order to combat, there is a number of concerted efforts to develop protocols to help prevent concussions from developing in the first place, even with athletes becoming bigger and faster and stronger based off of training and nutrition. This concerted effort has developed distinct protocols to, de to prevent concussions from developing in the first place. Many of these efforts are ill-fated and have focused on developing protective equipment, limiting of potential head contacts, recognizing treatment protocols and time forces for return to play following any type of head trauma, along with the immediate diagnosis and treatment to a head contact. The ill-fated nature 
is mainly with the protective equipment. And that's simply because we have a kind of bias in, if I have this protective equipment, that means I can do stuff with more. I can hit harder because I have this protective helmet. I don't have to follow proper hitting techniques because I have this protective helmet. The recognized treatment protocols and time course return to play is also ill-fated based off of the scheduling that we tend to use, particularly with sports where we see large amounts of potential head contact. This also has an additional stumbling block to it. And that stumbling block arises from the athletes and the coaches' willingness to accept that concussions might be real or are real. And that goes back into what we talked about in terms of the media perception about concussions and what concussions are. And that's simply because we generally don't see any actual signs of being hurt unless the person loses consciousness or the person has some sort of traumatic event that's associated with the head contact. Those are the ones that we typically see within the media that get blown out of proportion when it comes to legislation of play, in particular selection of specific sports to regulate as a means to prevent concussions. We also tend to ignore recovery time and the fact that recovery time is a progressive thing based off of several factors, including number of potential concussions that might have occurred, age of the person, nutritional status of the person, and relative metabolic fitness, that is, what is the health status of the individual. Within all of the preventative mechanisms that we know about, unlike many sports medical injuries, concussion is not something that we can prophylactically prevent, splint, or allow for modified participation so as to prevent. We do know that there is some benefit that can come about due to nutritional supplementation, such as increased creatine consumption, and light physical activity leading to participation in sports, so as to allow for higher levels of fitness, better coordination, and supplementation of the body's natural amount of creatine, creatine kinase, and creatine phosphate. The latter of which seems to have some preventative effect on long-term neurodegenerative issues, while, at, while the 
fitness aspect seems to lead to lower levels of inflammation and allow for better recovery, while the conditioning aspects and the learning aspects regarding play leads to the ability for better body positioning so as to minimize the force that the head might suffer due to play. When we start looking at the recovery issues, it's about inflammation and allowing for control of inflammation, particularly the control of inflammation within the brain. There are many biological markers that would be hormones and metabolites that increase with any type of injury. This includes injuries in the head that we tend not to look at when we start examining how and when we should allow participants to go back to play following concussions. One of the easiest preventative mechanisms that we can use is to monitor hydration and hydration status. As we pointed out in an article published four years ago now, that hydration and hydration status has a direct impact on the likelihood of suffering a concussion and is an, an possible rationale for why females have a higher risk for concussions relative to their male counterparts due to fat mass leading to a lower level of hydration and females having lower percent body mass made up of fluids. It's also why individuals who have higher fat mass might be at higher risks for developing concussions and having concussion-like issues, which is why fitness and training in an attempt to limit fatness and overfatness can lead to preventative mechanisms for concussions. And so we're left with this kind of question. Once again, we're just doing a quick take here. Since it appears we can't prevent concussions, which we can't, what can we do? We know that the preventative gear does not work at preventing concussions, even if we want to say that it's reducing the risk for concussions. This is where we need to have immediate evaluation for anybody that has a suspected head injury. And it's not about limiting exposure to sports as what seems to be what the intention of the laws being placed uh, in a proposed legislation within the state of California. It's about having proper medical supervision of athletes across youth sports, something that is not regularly seen. This is having educated and certified athletic trainers, educated and certified sports medical staff on site 
to address any type of injuries that might take place in the youth sports. This also leads to a lot of parental education, including what to look for and what to watch if a child has a suspected head injury. Generally, the recommendation is that if any functional loss is seen or an altered level of consciousness is experienced, the athlete should be placed on total rest for at least seven consecutive days. That is seven days without addressing any symptomatic issues. Seven consecutive days. At the end of the seven, seven consecutive days, we then wait for the person to exhibit asymptomatic days. That is days without showing any types of symptoms where we then slowly start to introduce physical activity and physical activity that is tends to be light in nature, non-sport specific for about a week, four to seven days. As long as the person is asymptomatic, we then start to reintroduce sport specific training over a two to three week recovery period. There is some evidence to support that introducing light physical activity along with introducing the increased creatine consumption within the diet following games or practice seems to have benefit for the person whether or not they are symptomatic of head injuries. The greatest empirical evidence for recovery and for being ready for activity and return to play is associated with a return of normal blood glucose levels and being asymptomatic for four consecutive days. And the reason for the blood glucose levels is that increased blood glucose levels tends to be one of the markers of inflammation. There is also issues for the long-term care of concussions, which is where we tend to get the kind of uh, fear-mongering that comes about in terms of what sports to restrict play in. We do know that long-term repetitive concussive events lead to neurodegenerative diseases, chronic migraines, and periods of major depression. These are the hallmark symptoms of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. These long-term issues appear to be related to the lack of resolution of inflammation during the immediate recovery period and an early return to play following a concussion event, not from playing a sport. We must point out, even though there's an inclination that any head trauma will result in the development of long-term issues, such as chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the development of these issues, while associated with a concussion, have a host of underlying factors 
all associated with lifestyle diseases, excessive oxidative stress, and overfatness, not from a specific sport. To reduce the discussion of concussions to the limitations of when someone should or should not play a specific sport is excessively reductive. It does not actually prevent any type of injury from taking place and can actually cause additional injuries due to lack of training on fundamental skills. With proper medical supervision, there is no reason to limit when someone should or should not play American football if the worry is about concussions. With proper coaching technique and proper coaching education surrounding technique, there is no reason to limit when someone should or should not play American football. There are sports that have higher incidences of concussions than American football, yet American football seems to take the brunt of the concussion debate based off of the Hollywoodification of the issues due to research that was focused on a confirmational bias surrounding the sports and the incidence of concussions and possible long-term chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you got a little bit out of this very quick take. Yes, I know it's about a half hour now, but it's still a quick take. Please make sure you're leaving the five-star reviews. Please make sure you're sharing out what we're putting out there with your friends and family. If you haven't already subscribed, please make sure you're subscribing so you get all of the latest episodes that are being put out. Make sure you're following on YouTube here on the podcast, as well as on Substack. Please make sure that you are uh, following on the Instagram as well as on threads for quick takes that we're putting out there. And by quick takes, I'm not talking about the 30 minute one right here, but the ones that are usually less than about a minute. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, please make sure you leave them for us.